Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. Thank you uh, for coming here this evening. Uh, it, uh, it takes a good bit of courage uh, to come to a presentation like this. Uh, doubtless, if you're in a spot where you have struggled with substance abuse or addiction, uh, many times before, uh, somebody has come to you uh, and they have tried to convince you uh, to reach out for help and that you have a problem and that you need that, uh, and, and you just weren't sure. Or maybe you tried and it didn't go well and you, you were trying to wonder, was it worth coming back again uh, to try again? Is it worth putting myself out there uh, and to be vulnerable? Uh, and it is, a, it is a hard place at the beginning uh, to say, I may need help. Uh, and one of the things that I would want you to know uh, in the approach that we're going to take is that every choice that's made uh, is your choice. Uh, there's no choice that's going to be forced upon you. Uh, we're going to help you assess life and to look at how things are going to assess the severity of the struggle that you may have. Uh, but at any point where a choice will be made, uh, that would be uh, your choice. Now, you may be able to relate uh, to the words of John Baker, uh, who was part of founding Celebrate Recovery, uh, in telling his own story. Uh, he says, I woke up and I knew I couldn't take another drink. But I also knew that I couldn't live without one. Or Kent Dunnington, uh, who would say, this of course is the utterly puzzling thing about addiction. That we should repeatedly and compulsively do that which we know is damaging to us. And that's the kind of spot that we find ourselves in. We know that we shouldn't. We know it's going to hurt. We know it's not just going to hurt us, it's going to hurt those that we love, uh, but something doesn't feel like it would let go. And, and we are compulsively driven to continue to do the things uh, that would destroy us. And if that's the tension of where you are, all that we're going to ask uh, is that you honestly examine the role uh, that alcohol or drugs play in your life. Uh, if you come to the point where you say, it's enslaving. It's, it's creating more trouble. It's not giving the benefit that I keep telling myself that it is. Uh, then we're going to offer you the opportunity to seek freedom. Um, it, and again, as you come to this study, uh, it's merely a guide. Uh, it's an option. Uh, we're not going to come and say it's superior to the 12 steps or a residential program or medical intervention or whatever your personal plan may be. Uh, honestly, what we want is that the materials that we put together, they may be a good supplement uh, to any of those things. Uh, but at the beginning of a journey, I think it's appropriate to give a caution. Uh, we, we don't want you to make a decision impulsively. Uh, doubtless, there have been many times when you just say, that's it, I'm done, I'm quitting, I, I'm serious this time. And out of no lack of sincerity, uh, but it was much more just a, 
exasperated decision in the moment, then it was something that was thought through. Where you say, no, I, I have the plan in place that can help me really make a solid decision. And so there's a point in the journey that we're going to go through uh, where we will ask you to consider a point of decision, but that's going to be uh, at the end of step two. Uh, and so before we step into our, our first step, uh, here's an initial question, one that I think uh, often gets overlooked uh, in the pursuit of recovery. What is it that your addiction does for you? What is it that you would be giving up if last time really was the last time? Because Carlo Di Clemente, he says, if addicts really believed that there was no positives to the addictive behavior and only negatives, they would be acting irrationally to continue to engage in the behavior. An accurate evaluation of the role behavior plays in the life of the addict appears to be an important element in fostering the serious consideration of change. If you change, you're going to be making a trade. A trade of the life that you're living now for a life of greater freedom from addiction. But there are certain things that your addiction are doing for you that you enjoy, that you benefit from. And we're not trying to shame that, but we just want you at the beginning of this journey, when you're going through that larger notebook, to write down and to put into print, what is it that my addiction is doing for me? So I'll be honest about the trade that I'm making. Now, as we get ready to take this first step, uh, which is to admit that we have a struggle that we're not going to overcome without God, uh, I think a good place to begin uh, is to assess our level of motivation. Uh, and a helpful paradigm that I've found to do that uh, is this kind of five level of motivation paradigm. Uh, Pre-contemplation. That's the point where uh, honestly, if you were pre-contemplation, you probably wouldn't be here right now. If you're pre-contemplation, you're watching this on video uh, because a friend asked you to and you're kind of mad at them even as you do it. Pre-contemplation is where you not, you're not thinking about changing, maybe in the next 12 to 18 months. Uh, you think you've got this under control and it's going fine. Contemplation uh, is really... The, the major mark of contemplation is ambivalent, ambivalence. There's times when you feel pretty good about your addiction. You think it's working. You think you, you've got it under control. And then there's times when you recognize you don't. And, and you kind of feel these strong, conflicting emotions. Uh, preparation. That's when you begin to count the cost for change. You're moving out of ambivalence. You recognize that life isn't going to go well unless you make changes. You're just, you're not sure what change would look like and you're trying to figure out what that would be. Action is kind of self-explanatory. That's when you take whatever you learned in preparation and you begin to put it into action. Um, maintenance is when most of your efforts towards change are in maintaining progress that you've made, not establishing new progress. Now one of the things that I think is helpful to do with that paradigm uh, you may have several areas of your life uh, that, are, that are struggling with an addictive level uh, of, of behavior. Uh, it may be more than one substance, or it may be a substance and another uh, action that you're struggling with addiction with. Uh, I think it's helpful to go through and just 
write out the substances. And where is your level of motivation for each of these substances or each of the activities to which you have an addictive level relationship with it? And at least be honest with yourself and say, right now I'm only committed to changing this. Or right now about half the time I'm ready to change this one. That way you have a, an honest assessment of where you're starting and your level of disclosure with whoever you're going to invite into your support network uh, is much more honest uh, and transparent. Now we give you an evaluation because part of admitting that we have a struggle is to be able to evaluate uh, what's going on. And you can see the, the questions that are there uh, at the site bradhambrick.com slash addiction. There's an online version. If you don't want to circle all the things and do the math afterwards, it will score it for you. Uh, but if you turn to the next page, page 9, uh, you'll begin to see uh, the, uh, the outline of that evaluation. And we use three major categories because uh, these three categories are present uh, in, in most all of your addiction literature. Uh, it might, you know, the common verges of use, abuse, and dependence. Uh, or you might have internal change, lifestyle change, life, life breakdown. Uh, Ed Welch calls it sin, slavery, and tragedy. Uh, but the assessment is going to take you through those three levels of relationship uh, with your substance of choice. In that first level, again, whether we call it use, internal change, or sin, uh, addiction always begins with unwise or immoral experimentation. In order to get to addiction, we must cross the lines of folly and sin. And we talk about crossing those lines, and often this is where a lot of debate comes up. It, it, oftentimes we have a pretty weak definition of sin. We think of sin as if it's just the bad things that we do. As if sin was just behaviors. As if sin only existed uh, when we were doing it. Uh, but what we recognize is that sin is actually much more instinctual than it is volitional. Uh, it is our nature. We are broken. Uh, this is where a lot of times in uh, addiction and recovery circles, you'll get a whole lot of debate uh, about, uh, is addiction a disease? Uh, and my goal is not to try to settle that debate. Uh, but I will say this, for those who advocate for a disease model, they're making a point that many people in the church need to hear. Uh, there's an old, old heresy regarding sin. It was called Pelagianism. You don't need to know that. Uh, it just shows you I went to seminary. Uh, but Pelagianism was just, it was the view that sin was just the bad things that we did. It was just behavior. And the early church forsook it because they said, no, sin is much deeper than that. And those who advocate for a disease model, one of the things that they're trying to get us to see uh, is that we are broken in our nature uh, and that we need to grapple with it uh, at that level. Uh, so what are some of the things that we assess in this, in this first level? Well, uh, the first few questions uh, look at what it means for addiction to violate wisdom principles. In order for addiction to become a controlling presence in our life, it's got to cross a lot of lines of wisdom. And it's helpful for us to look at that because those are some of the steps that we're going to have to trace backwards 
if we're going to get to a spot where we begin to live without our addiction. Because there's a whole lot of, of barriers of wisdom that would be very good for us that we begin to forsake early in the process of coming into addiction. Uh, and then there's moral precepts. Uh, where the addiction begins to gain control in our life. Yet in here, we begin to rely on the addiction for things that only God can provide. And we begin to rely on the addiction to solve the problems that it created. And that's, that's one of those warning signs that, that should alert us. When we begin to rely on our addiction to solve the problem that it created, we're believing a lot of false promises in what it can do. Kind of classic example, if you're married uh, and uh, your substance abuse and the, the lack of follow-through in key areas of your life is causing conflict between you and your spouse, and then when your spouse is upset with you, what do you do to calm yourself down? Well, you drink. Uh, and you begin to use the addiction to try to solve the problem that the addiction created. And then there's that area where addiction results in a fading conscience and a loss of willpower. Uh, and here it's just that callousing uh, of our conscience and our will is weakening. Uh, and it's at, it's at this point that that even becomes more of a concern uh, than the actual habit itself. Because if we do not reinvigorate the conscience uh, and begin to strengthen the will to fight, even the fact that this is wrong will not show up on our radar screen uh, because the, the warning system that God has given us has been turned off. And so stage two, uh, whether that be the abuse, lifestyle change, or slavery, uh, this is usually the one that gets noticed least. Uh, because we, we don't really pay attention until we get to the tragedy phase of phase three. Uh, but, but phase two is usually marked both by uh, physiological changes, uh, that being tolerance and withdrawal, uh, and psychological changes, just our conforming lifestyle and cravings. And so with lifestyle adaptations, uh, in order for addiction to become a permanent part of your life, it's got to make itself at home in the rhythms of your life. I mean, it's got to become part of your normal day-to-day -day operation where it doesn't feel strange to do the things that are addictive. It feels more strange not to do them. Uh, this is where Carlo Di Clementi again, he says, it takes choice and commitment to continue to obtain effective access and to seek addictive behavior when there are negative personal and social consequences that emerge. The addicted individual appears to be functioning more on autopilot than choosing. Again, talking about kind of the disease metaphor there. He says, nevertheless, a chosen commitment to the addictive behavior continues. There are virtually hundreds of little choices that are made daily and weekly to ensure access to the behavior. Arranging schedules, making excuses, sneaking off for periods of time, and minimizing consequences are all part of the process of protecting continued engagement in the addiction. So there's lifestyle adaptation in phase two. Uh, there's tolerance. You know, one of the really cool things is that God made our bodies remarkably adaptive. Uh, whatever goes on with our body, our body tries to self-correct. 
And so when you introduce uh, large amounts of a mind or mood altering substance into your body, your body's going to make adaptations. Uh, and so, for instance, if it's alcohol, your body is going to become much more efficient at processing alcohol, and it's going to take more and more alcohol to reach intoxication because your body has increased the production of the enzymes uh, that eliminate it. Uh, and that leads us to withdrawal. The more your body adapts to having this foreign substance in it, the less comfortable your body is going to be without it. Because your body is creating a new normal uh, that, that just assumes the presence of that substance. And the thing about withdrawal symptoms is they tend to be the opposite of the pleasurable experience of the substance. And so uh, if, if your drug of choice is a stimulant, uh, then the withdrawal symptoms are going to be feeling very lethargic. Uh, if, you're, if your substance of choice is a pain medication, uh, then you're going to feel achy, uh, even beyond whatever pain you are medicating with the medication. Uh, because withdrawal symptoms tend to be the opposite uh, because your body is adapting to the presence of that symptom, of that substance. And then there's the psychological dependence and cravings. Uh, one of the things that uh, that alcohol and drugs do is they change the reward center in our brain. Uh, and so all of our motivational systems begin to be tied to that substance. And when we get to step three uh, and we look at understanding the motive in history, uh, we'll look at that a bit more. So then we hit stage three, uh, whether that be dependence, life breakdown, tragedy, whatever you want to call it. Uh, when we surrender control of our lives to a substance, uh, then destruction is what we should expect. Uh, because sin is a predator. Uh, it, there is an enemy who intends our destruction, and he is as happy to use addiction as anything else uh, to destroy our lives. Um, it, uh, and so it may be relational and professional damage. Uh, that friendships and work uh, performance go down. It could be health damage. We'll look at that a bit more. Uh, tragic life consequences. Uh, here is what I would want you to see at this point. Oftentimes, uh, when we're going into our teenage years, if we have parents that try to warn us about things like alcohol and drugs, what they will do is they will hold out stage three consequences. And it sounds like if you experiment with drugs and alcohol, you're going to be homeless under a bridge in like three weeks. And so we experiment. And it doesn't happen. Ah! They were lying. Slippery slope. Scare tactics. Um, and so it is easy uh, to dismiss those phase three warnings because they don't happen early. And you may, you may read that depending on where you're at uh, in the addictive process, and you may feel like those are false warnings, or you may feel a lot of shame because you remember those warnings and you dismiss them, and now you're reaping some of those. Uh, another part of admitting that we have a struggle uh, is at least coming to a little bit of a definition uh, of what addiction is. 
Uh, I've given you nine definitions here. They come from uh, many of the authors that we'll use a good bit in this material. We're not going to spend a lot of material, a lot of time on this material. Um, because I don't think the most important thing is coming to an agreed upon definition of addiction. But that's where a lot of people like to argue and there tends to be a big smoke cloud around the subject uh, of definition. Uh, and so I offer you some there uh, so that you can get to know where the authors are coming from. Uh, you know, Ed Welch would say it's bondage to a rule of substance. Uh, it's something that becomes the center of our life and it, uh, is, um, it is able to defend itself against truth. Uh, even when somebody's telling them the truth, we won't hear it. Uh, solidly they establish problematic pattern of behavior. Uh, if you move down to number eight, uh, I think it's a little telling from a cultural standpoint. Uh, Linda Mercadante, uh, she says, uh, the thematic has come full circle. What was originally understood as the universal condition of sin. So there was a time when we didn't use addiction language that much. We were just all sinners and that's how we understood uh, whatever it was that was a besetting sin. Uh, and then it was reduced to a pathology that was just a certain group of people. There was everybody else, and then there was the addicts. And then it was expanded into a proliferation of addictive diagnosis. Uh, you know, it went from there being addicts to there were so many kinds of addictions that pretty soon we all had an addiction of, of some kind. And now it's simply become another name for the universal human condition. Uh, and uh, as opposed to understanding our struggle in moral categories, we tend to understand it uh, in addiction categories. Uh, the last definition is me throwing my definition in the hat. Uh, addiction is present whenever continued self-destructive behavior seems easier and more appealing than healthy living. So if you're asking me, Brad, what do you mean by addiction in the course of a, a material like this? I just mean I've gotten a spot in my life where I know that for me to continue to live in a self-destructive way, for whatever reason, seems more appealing to me than not. At, at that point, uh, I have come to a point of bondage that my life is going to continue to deteriorate and whatever we want to call it, however we want to label it, disease, character, habit, uh, that is much less important to me than we're just at the spot that we can admit, yeah, I'm self-destructing and I like it. I mean, I don't like it all the time, but in the moment, if I have to choose between continuing in self-destruction or not, I continue to go there. Now, in terms of admitting that we have a struggle that we can't overcome without God, I think the next section may be the most important. Uh, and it's understanding the role of honesty. Uh, if I could reduce this entire presentation to a single step, it would be this. If you want to overcome addiction in one step, be honest. Just be honest. Uh, honesty may be more difficult than sobriety. Uh, at the risk of being offensive, uh, and I really don't mean to be, uh, but... Somebody in the throes of addiction, I've never had them get defensive on me with this. You can't be a good addict without being a good liar. You just won't get far enough into it. You have to be able to hide what's going on. You have to be able to convince people that, that things are okay. Uh, and so if you want to ask me, what is the number one technique in overcoming addiction? It's honesty. If I could give you a, a statement to memorize, 
it would be this. You'll never be more free than you are honest. Uh, Now there's a a category that I find helpful in talking about this. Uh, It's fragmentation. Uh, Fragmentation sounds like a big $5 word, but uh, if you imagine with me your story as a plate, and then we drop the plate, and it breaks into fragments. What oftentimes happens in conversation when we're in the throes of addiction and we're desperate and we're just trying to make it to the next day is we're in a conversation where it might be helpful. It has the opportunity to to be an access point to to freedom or relief. Uh, But what we do is we pick up one or two pieces, not the whole thing, and we treat it as if it's the whole story. And so we come to somebody and we need money and we say, hey, I'm really struggling, you're my friend, Uh, won't you help me? And we just take the fact that I'm behind on my rent and you're my friend as if that were the whole story. And then when they tell us, man, look, I I think more's going on. I've helped you with this three times before and you said you were going to pay me back and, and you didn't. What's going on? Can we talk about the bigger problem? Oh, well, look, I thought you were my friend. And we get defensive because we're not willing to look at the whole piece. So, so these different ways uh, that we can be deceitful, they're really just different strategies uh, at fragmentation. Maybe we omit facts, we insert a few false facts, uh, we, we stir up this false emotion. Uh, false emotion just not meaning that we don't feel it, uh, but there are certain things that we're leaving out Uh, that if we were honest about those, then a different emotional response would be appropriate. You know, in that example that I gave, if I was being honest with you about the number of times I've asked money and the struggle with addiction, then I would come to you much more with a sense of uh, guilt or humility than this sense of righteous indignation that you're my friend and you won't help me. So I begin to play the part uh, based on the amount of the story that I'll let you know. Uh, Sometimes we develop a whole false story. Um, minimizing. I mean, if you think about it, it's hard not to minimize. Some of it's the denial that we just don't want to admit the struggle's as bad as it is. But with addiction, what's a lot of addiction about? It's about getting an artificial high or being in a spot of pain and just being less low. We have been manipulating our emotions with substance. So doesn't it make sense that when we're initially trying to let somebody in and we haven't fully owned the problem, that our sense of proportionality is going to be off? Uh, Blame shifting, uh, saying I don't know. Uh, Late truth is a form of deception. Because oftentimes what we do is that when something once something gets discovered, Somebody finds out what we were doing not because we disclosed it, but because they discovered it. We want to get full credit for it like we disclosed it. As if them discovering what we were doing was our honesty. That's not honesty. Uh, Changing definitions. That's the essence of manipulation. In the vast majority of the time, we don't do it on purpose. Uh, In the example that I gave you, the way I use the word friend was changing the definition of a word, and it was manipulative. I use the word friend 
as if friends should give me free access to whatever help I need from you, even if what I'm asking for is not what's best for me. When I change the definition of the word friend and then give that false emotion to punish you for not cooperating, that's part of being dishonest. That's part of why people back away from us. Uh, Exaggeration uh, is another way uh, that we do that. Uh, Gerald May, he says, in addiction, uh, as in all of life, we overcomplicate things in order to avoid facing the truth. John Baker again, he says, We are as sick as our secrets. Remember, it is always better to tell the ugly truth rather than a beautiful lie. Truth hurts, but it's lies that leaves the scars. You know, at the end of step one, what we want to be able to say is that I have a struggle. It's bigger than I can overcome by myself. I need God and other people to come alongside of me. And that's why I would say at the end of this, this is where we're getting to a pivotal point in change. Uh, The most important thing you can do is involve somebody else. You know, as Ed Welch would say, uh, do this work with someone. Uh, Addictions are private, so doing it in public is a great way to stand against your addiction. Let me ask you a silly question for the purpose of asking you a serious question. If I gave you the choice, if I said you could wrestle an alligator in a swamp or in a tree, where would you choose to wrestle that alligator? That's a no-brainer. In a tree. It's got those stubby little legs and a long tail. Uh, I've got long legs. If I'm out there in the mud, I don't stand a chance with that alligator in the swamp. Because it's made for the swamp. I'm not. If I get it in a tree, then that little oblong body and short little stubby legs, if I can get one kick, it's gone. So I told you I was going to turn it on you. Here's the serious question. If I gave you the choice of battling your addiction alone or with people who love you and care about you, where would you battle it? That's the pivotal question. If you battle it on its home turf, the likelihood of victory is low. And so what we want to do in a presentation like this is very early encourage you, even if you're not fully committed to the process yet, and we haven't even got to the point where you start to make that commitment, is for you to say, I'm going to place myself in the context of other people who will help me think through whether this is a journey uh, that I need to take.